0: Hi, I'm Abby, a functional dietitian and gut health expert. Hi, I'm Jillian, a functional dietitian that specializes in women's health and hormones. And this is Your Body Has Your Back podcast.
1: Together, we have over 20 years of experience supporting clients in healing their gut and hormone symptoms and guiding them from overwhelmed to ease in their body.
0: We help clients reconnect with their body and transform their lives using targeted nutrition, lifestyle, and supplement therapies. Finding optimal
1: health in our modern chaotic world is more challenging than ever. And now, it's our mission to provide you with the tools you need to strengthen your relationship with your body, to resolve your gut and hormone symptoms, and become your greatest health advocate.
0: Join us for honest, inspired and offbeat conversations on health that will leave you feeling empowered to take action so that you, you can tr- trust your body has your back.
1: Hello and welcome to the much awaited episode on protein. Last week, we dove into the gut and hormone healing plate, and we outlined the infrastructure for how to build a nourishing meal. And this week, we are starting a series of deep dives into the macronutrients that comprise the specific areas of the plate, starting with today's deep dive into protein. So I hope you all as excited as we are to dive into these macronutrients, this is what we get excited about, (laughs) really with the goal of creating more confidence in making nourishing food choices and reducing confusion when it comes to how to eat for optimal gut and hormone health. So big picture for today, just pulling a little bit from last week, why is protein important? So as we talked about this last week, protein is queen, we've now dubbed it the queen And as a quick refresher on the big roles that protein plays in the body and why it deserves really the front row seat as a fourth of our plate at every meal and snack is that it's involved in hormone and neurotransmitter production, really supportive in nourishing our adrenals, which are where our stress hormones come from, supporting healthy detoxification and the breakdown of both internal and external toxins and waste products building lean muscle, and also for the production of immunoproteins and specifically supporting a healthy gut immune system. So some pretty important roles protein plays, and we're going to go even deeper than that in today's episode, and Jilly's going to kick it off with really, how do we start to use protein in this protein
0: metabolism idea? Hey, Jillian here. I just wanted to pop in to remind you to check out my self-paced nutrition course, Eat to Heal Your PCOS. If you're a woman struggling with PCOS and you're dealing with all the unpleasant hormone symptoms like acne, irregular cycles, head hair loss, weight gain, and more, this course is for you. Eat to Heal Your PCOS was designed to help you discover simple and effective nutrition strategies to balance your hormones and to start resolving your PCOS symptoms naturally without unnecessary restriction or cutting out foods that you enjoy. Building a supportive foundation with your nutrition and knowing how to confidently fuel your body for balanced hormones is the number one place to start for healing your PCOS. So if you haven't checked out the Eat to Heal Your PCOS course, you can find it in our show notes or you can go to JillianGreaves.com to check it out. You can also take our free PCOS blood sugar imbalance quiz, which will help you to determine if this is the right course for you. Let's talk a little bit about how, how proteins are actually broken down and how proteins are metabolized and utilized in the body. If you are really into the kind of science behind this and and nerding out with us, buckle up. We're going to dive in and and you know kind of walk you through all the nitty gritty details. So as you guys have probably gathered by now, your body's ability to actually break down, absorb and assimilate nutrients from food is equally as important as eating the right foods and getting the right amounts of those foods. So how we digest these foods are really, really important. So let's run through kind of the quick and dirty on protein metabolism. Proteins are broken down into amino acids. And if you remember back to like middle school science class, amino acids are referred to as the building blocks of protein. So proteins that we eat are going to first be denatured in the stomach by stomach acid. This is where protein is essentially unraveled, so it is more accessible for being broken down by protease enzymes, which are enzymes that are produced by the pancreas that actually break down protein more so. So protein is denatured by the stomach acid, and then it's broken down in the small intestine by these protease enzymes. This is where you can kind of think about like scissors cutting up or chewing up the protein into smaller peptides or peptide fragments, and then being further broken down into free amino acids, these building blocks. And ultimately, these single amino acids are going to be absorbed through the the brush border in the small intestine, where really all of you know the majority of our macronutrients and micronutrients are going to be absorbed. So in terms of a little bit more background or info on amino acids themselves, we have 20 different amino acids nine of which are considered essential. And what this means is that we have to obtain them from our diet. We can't synthesize them. We cannot make them on our own, you know, internally. So amino acids themselves are precursors for the production of really important uh, non-steroidal hormones, neurotransmitters, um, which are chemical messengers that play a really, really vital role in a lot of different physiological functions in the body. To give you a couple specific examples, neurotransmitters like dopamine and epinephrine, which a lot of us, you know, may have heard of before, require the amino acids. I'll butcher probably a variety of these. Phenylalanine and tyrosine and serotonin, another one many of us have maybe heard of before, which is kind of like our feel-good neurotransmitter. This neurotransmitter is actually derived from the amino acid tryptophan. Tryptophan, Abby and I were talking about before this is uh, a lot of us kind of think about tryptophan as like the Thanksgiving amino acid that makes us feel kind of like, you know, Tired and full and exactly. happy. So, you know, tryptophan is is found in turkey and a variety of other protein sources. And it's not just here to make us tired. <laughs> yeah. It's actually uh, needed to produce things like serotonin. And interestingly, non steroidal hormones like melatonin, which is a hormone that is most well known for its role in uh, regulating sleep and circadian rhythms, is also made from tryptophan. And so, melatonin comes from tryptophan, the non essential amino acid. Proline is needed to produce something called glutathione, which is kind of considered the master antioxidant in the body. So it plays a, a huge, huge role when it comes to, you know, kind of supporting the immune system as well as with uh, supporting detoxification in the liver. So it's a really important antioxidant. Other important non-steroidal hormones that are derived from amino acids include things like Thyroid hormone, which is made from the amino acid tyrosine. Insulin, which is our primary uh, blood sugar regulating hormone, is also made from amino acids. So just to give you a sense of how important these amino acids are, and each amino acid has really a different role, a different function, you know, supports a different process in the body. So really, really crucial to make sure that we're getting all of the amino acids that the body needs, you know, in order to to kind of support these things. So basically, once we break down protein into these amino acids, we absorb these amino acids and assuming that the body has enough glucose present for energy, amino acids are essentially rebuilt to kind of form new protein proteins in cells and around the body. Some of these amino acids are going to go towards uh, fueling our muscles and supporting things like tissue repair, and some are going to be used as an energy source, kind of depending on the context in the situation. But if we are not getting enough protein or we are not breaking it down adequately and absorbing it optimally, we are depriving the body of the raw materials and the key resources that it needs to function optimally. So... If you didn't love protein and amino acids prior to this, I hope that you do now.
1: (laughs) I'm almost like, are amino acids queen? Like, do we like rename that? It's like, it's actually about amino acids and like proteins, like the, like the big veil, but really we want these nitty gritty building blocks more than we want anything else.
0: A hundred percent. That is the goal is to, you know, get all of these amino acids, these 20 different amino acids and Uh, you know, to get them in ample abundant amounts and to actually be able to absorb and, you know, utilize them well. And I think you're right. I think amino acids are our queen. I always (laughs) think about Scrabble and like I always
1: get stuck with like the crappiest letters in Scrabble. And like if Scrabble was any reflection of my intake of amino acids, like I'd be pissed. Like I'd have have like no structures to build anything cool. But that piece of like, you know, amino acids are very similar to like the letters in the alphabet. Like if you don't have, you know, the full span of the alphabet and certain obviously vowels are going to be more readily uh, or frequently utilized than maybe some others, like there's more value in certain amino acids than others. But like we do need them all to make all of the words. It functions very much the
0: same. I love this Scrabble analogy. I might steal that from you. <laughs> my Nana was a big Scrabble
1: player. We played a lot of Scrabble in my family. I'm still the worst oh, and I still don't know
0: how to spell, so... <laughs> Well, good thing that we're yeah. functional dietitians and we don't need to be good at spelling. Thank goodness. <laughs> so now that you uh, know how important these amino acids are, where do, you know, amino acids come from protein, obviously, but what are sources of protein? Let's kind of like take it back a little bit and, you know, talk more about that. Yeah. So we, we dove into this
1: a little bit in last week's episode. So protein really comes from protein rich foods. So We're going to think of things initially like our kind of chicken, turkey, beef, bison, lamb. So some of our more kind of animal muscle proteins, fish, shellfish, that we can think about Greek yogurt, tofu, tempeh. So some of our plant-based proteins, legumes like chickpeas, beans, and lentils, which are plant protein sources. And they're also, as we mentioned last week, kind of predominant carbohydrate sources. So we're we're walking the line between protein sources and carbohydrate sources with some of our, our plant proteins, which really brings us into the conversation of like, let's talk about plant proteins and animal proteins for a second. Let's talk about the elephant in the room here that most of us think about when we think about protein so to start off we really don't want this conversation to turn into like this versus that of like this is better than that but really we do want to i mean from the nature of like let's compare them and then kind of see what we come out with the other side really we want you to understand the similarities and the differences between the two and kind of highlight how you know really both plant and animal proteins Can have a place on the plate. And we just want you to more understand how they function and really the importance of both of them. So, the biggest difference between animal and plant proteins is the amount and variety of amino acids that are present in the (laughs) food. So, when we eat protein to gain access to its amino acids, these amino acids are really what run to the show, as as Jilly kind of outlined, from our liver detox to muscle synthesis to enzymes, even for more optimal digestion, gut immune strength. It's all about the amino acids. So animal proteins are complete sources of protein, meaning they are complete with all of the essential, those nine amino acids that we must get from foods, whereas plant proteins are incomplete sources of amino acids, most of them, meaning they do not contain all nine of those essential amino acids that we need from foods. So there are some exceptions like soy and quinoa, hemp and buckwheat are complete sources of plant proteins. However, all of these proteins, be it complete or incomplete, carry a different assortment and amount of those types of amino acids. So we've got different distributions, we could say. In, in some of these foods. And the biggest amino acids that are missing or low from plant-based foods are kind of a highlight of a couple, lysine, threonine, leucine, methionine, tryptophan. And those are pretty key amino acids that are involved in processes like muscle synthesis and neurotransmitter formation for things like our mood and our sleep and our focus. So we just have some opportunities where we think about okay i'm going to get you know some amino acids from these abundance from animal proteins and i might need you know to fill in a couple gaps with some of these plant based foods here that's just the truth of it so the big picture is that we really want to be focusing on getting the variety of amino acids and really optimizing the food that we need to emphasize to get that most robust pool of those building blocks rather than get into the nitty-gritty debate of animal versus plant proteins and you know, maybe the the ethics and, and whatnot behind it. We're really just here to talk science to you. So this brings up kind of the this maybe old school idea of like protein pairing. If anybody's heard about this before, which essentially means kind of pairing two or more plant proteins together at a meal to make up for the missing amino acids. So an example of this would be where like beans and rice came from. But we now know that the body's able to create an amino acid pool really for roughly 24 hours, which means really over the course of the day, as long as we're focusing on a variety of different protein foods, we can create a complete pool of amino acids. So again, it's really the focus on the variety of proteins than it is on this kind of nitty gritty, this versus that idea. So just another area that we want to kind of mention and be aware of is that that kind of plant proteins are those high proportion of carbohydrates. So, you know, in last week's episode, we really talked about those beans and legumes kind of falling more into those starchy carbohydrates and partially into the protein section, but we really look at foods as their kind of predominant macronutrients. So a lot of those legumes and beans, we might put more into with our clients saying we into that like starchy carbohydrate section, and then kind of maybe emphasize some other forms of protein on the plate, really because we are looking at the lens of blood sugar. So it's not a value of whether those foods are good or bad but more focusing on what we are getting at with these foods and their effect on blood sugar. So when we are eating a predominantly plant-based diet with really a lot of reliance on proteins from the beans and the legumes and, and some other plants, we sometimes can see challenges with blood sugar regulation. And then the last piece that we want to kind of talk about in terms of just more specific plant foods is often when we have clients using like nuts and seeds, as sources of protein, which yes, they do contain protein. Again, they're kind of spanning between the predominant fat content of these foods, and they do have a small amount of protein, but we're talking like three to five grams of protein. So when we're aiming to get 30 grams of protein at a meal, that like one or two tablespoons of peanut butter certainly is going to be a contribution to our protein needs, but it's really not going to take us to the finish line of hitting that goal. So sometimes when we hear, you know, oh, I had a smoothie this morning and it had like two tablespoons of peanut butter, we're kind of like, and what else? <laughs> Where's exactly, the protein? and that again yeah. is taking us to that big picture of like blood
0: sugar and all of those functions. And you can really argue too that most all plant foods have some amount of protein, right? We were also talking about the fact that, like, okay, you know, greens have little bit of protein. You know, a lot of plant foods do have a little bit of protein, but that doesn't make them a good source of protein. And I love nut and seed butter. But, you know, to get to 30 grams of, you know, protein eating nut or seed butter that would likely not feel very good for my digestion um, or anyone else's. So, you know, we need to think about whether it is a good source of protein or if it just is contributing, you know, a little bit of protein. Absolutely.
1: And that that piece, too, of are those nutrients in the foods like as bioavailable, meaning can we absorb them as readily? And, you know, the bioavailability and absorption of some amino acids and nutrients in plants are lower than animal proteins. That's again, we have you know, we know this from research and measuring of the absorption of of these in foods and how really plant foods are harder to break down in the digestive system and this is where, you know, fiber and specific nutrients kind of can get bound up in those plant-based foods. and we're going to dive into this concept a little bit more in the kind of carbohydrates episode that we're going to dive into talking about fiber and all of that stuff. but these are all things that we want to be mindful of floating in the back of our head when we're making choices about, you know, the foods that we're putting on our plate, especially when we're really optimizing for protein intake. so again, coming back to the big picture of variety And really where, you know, plant and animal both have a place on the plate. And we want to think about that opportunity for kind of like amino acids pooling over the course of the day. But just to kind of do our last little comparison of of the two in terms of just the volume of protein to kind of take home our point here, let's compare, let's, you know, let's say four ounces of beef to four ounces of kidney beans, just straight numbers here. Beef's about 30 grams of protein. Versus that same four ounces of kidney beans is about nine grams, so pretty big difference in terms of one hitting our macronutrient need for protein, one falling a little shy. So we'd need to add other foods. Beef provides a hundred percent of the essential amino acids, while kidney beans are providing about twenty to fifty percent of those amino acids, depending upon the unique amino acid that we're looking at. So really, in order to get the same amount of protein from kidney beans as the beef, we would need to be eating twelve ounces. And a cup of rice because that pro- we need to pair some things to get all of those amino acids. So we'd be consuming, you know, just from a numbers standpoint, like 640 calories and 122 grams of carbs just from our one meal of protein needs, reliant from kidney beans and rice. So our point here, again. Different foods provide different nutrients and macronutrients, and when it comes to animal proteins, we are getting more effective and efficient intake of amino acids than plant proteins. So overall, our goal is really getting the optimal amounts of protein from a variety of sources, and we really believe it's best when we partner both plant and animal proteins for gut and hormone health.
0: I couldn't agree more, and I just I love the way that you kind of call out the fact that These are just different foods. It's not, you know, apples to apples. And, you know, in terms of animal proteins, plant proteins, and, you know, you can make arguments that beef doesn't have, you know, fiber. It doesn't have, you know, some of the phytonutrients or phytochemicals that some of these plant, you know, proteins contain. So they're just really, really different foods at the end of the day. And I think there's like all sorts of things flying around Instagram comparing, you know, X protein to Y protein in terms of animal versus plant. And I I understand the intention behind those types of things, but I think it just makes it really confusing for consumers because they are just very different foods. There are benefits and there are drawbacks to both. So really at the end of the day, it's about, you know, meeting your body's amino acid needs or, you know, kind of filling up that, you know, amino acid pool, being able to actually like, you know, break down proteins into those amino acids, absorb, utilize these things properly from a variety of sources. And your point
1: too of like, well, you know, like beef doesn't add fiber. It's like, well, if we rewind to last week and we think about that gut healing kind of hormone plate that we talked about, like that's why we have diversity on the plate. We've got, you know, a section for protein and then we have a section for starchy carbohydrates and our non-starchy vegetables, which are very fibrous and very. So it's, it's not about one food having to be the end all be all mecca of every nutrient that we're going to get again, that like variety.
0: (laughs) <laughs> yeah diversity it's the essence yeah. of life it's <laughs> exactly yeah, that's t- the totally wrong <laughs> saying but we make up our own um, sayings here <laughs> so now that you have a little sense of where protein comes from and you know kind of some of the differences between animal and plant proteins let's talk a little bit about the quality of protein and I, I want to call out that in research when we're looking at protein talking about quality. Often this is referring to the actual bioavailability like, you know, Abby's talking about in terms of, you know, the absorbability and your body's ability to bring in these amino acids and and meet your needs um, from these foods optimally with talking about quality of protein. Here, Really, we want to speak to kind of what to look for specifically, like with labels and marketing when you are purchasing and choosing protein products when you're at the grocery store. So in terms of protein, you know, quality and sourcing for animal products specifically, I want to kind of list out some of the things to look for in terms of the gold standard when it comes to quality and With animal proteins in particular, we do know that there are differences in the actual nutrient content of the protein that you are consuming depending on how the animal was raised, what it ate, you know, as it was being raised. So this is really kind of where that's coming from and, you know, how the the animals were treated and cared for. So when it comes to poultry, so, you know, things like chicken and turkey, ideally gold standard, we want to look for poultry that is organic and pasture raised. For our grazing animals, so things like beef, bison, lamb, ideally looking for products that are organic, grass-fed, and ideally grass-finished. And this speaks to you know the quality of the animal's life but also the nutrient content of the you know protein that you're consuming animals raised that are grass-fed grass-finished they have been found to contain higher amounts of beneficial fatty acids so more omega-3 fatty acids less and you know inflammatory omega-6 fatty acids they're more rich in CLA or conjugated uh, linoleic acid and they also just contain a lot more uh, vitamins compared to grain-fed animals, which makes sense when you think about it at the end of the day, right? There's just some some differences here. With eggs, ideally, we want to look for eggs that are organic and pasture-raised. With dairy, organic and grass-fed, again, this is going to impact the nutrient content of the dairy. When it comes to fish. The gold standard would be looking for fish that is wild caught and sustainably harvested. When it comes to uh, soy and soy products uh, specifically, so speaking to to some plant proteins, ideally we want to look for organic soy. So things like organic tofu or organic tempeh. Soy is a high pesticide GMO crop. And with choosing organic, if you have uh, access to that, you're going to minimize your exposure to these things. And I will say that, again, this is the gold standard. And if this is not in your budget, we want to totally call out and recognize that it does cost more to purchase these higher quality proteins. We wish that we could make these accessible to absolutely everyone. But know that if this is not in the budget for you right now, that is okay. If you have the ability to, you have access to and your finances permit, choose organic. Maybe you can't get the pasture raised or grass-fed, grass-finished, but choose organic where you can. And if that's not an option for you, maybe just consider choosing leaner cuts of meat. You know, meats that are a little bit less fatty where some of these um, toxins and different things accumulate. Another option if you are looking to kind of bring in more higher quality animal products that are a bit more affordable than what we're seeing at like a Whole Foods I always like to kind of look for what's around a client. So what's local? Do you have any farms that offer a CSA that you could buy into and, you know, get uh, regular deliveries of really great quality animal products? If you are in Massachusetts, the Boston area, um, Abby and I are fans of Walden, which sources really high quality animal products from around New England and I think New York as well. There's also great quality animal products even on Thrive Market. If anyone's familiar with that platform, they do have, you know, Proteins that you can order animal proteins. Another company we like is Force of Nature, which is a really great company. The brother or sister company is Paleo Valley, which we also love. And Force of Nature is doing some really cool things to try to make really high quality animal products accessible to the masses and, and with supporting regenerative farming. So that's super cool. And for fish, there's also kind of these different delivery services or options that can make, you know, the wild caught sustainably harvested fish a bit more accessible. A couple that I recommend often are catch sitka and sizzle fish. So more affordable, everything comes frozen and you just, you know, throw it in the freezer. And to speak to what clients have said too from using these services, the quality in terms of like the taste and freshness is like massive compared to, you know, some of the things that we access at the grocery store. And it's, you know, a bit more affordable. If that's not in the cards for you, but we're really looking to amp up the quality fish intake, Wild Planet is a great company that's founded a lot of grocery stores and they make the canned and pouched tuna, salmon, sardines, which is a very accessible, um, also low effort, but accessible financially, you know, kind of way to bring in more of this fatty fish. So just a couple kind of thoughts on how to make this work, but we really want to drive home the fact that, you know, if it's not in your budget, that's okay. But but if it is, this is something that, you know, we feel strongly is worth, you know, investing in and maybe putting some resources into in terms of bringing in those quality proteins. Do you have any other thoughts on, you know, options or protein quality, Ab? I think just to even that point of like what it's like what your food ate
1: is what then you eat always like an interesting concept of, you know, how do we get nutrition? We eat it. How do they get nutrition? And then how do we eat nutrient dense products is like through what they eat, even like, you know, and pasture raised is, is a defined term. It actually like legally means that this animal had to get outside. And when we think about, you know, the egg aisle, could there be more words that they use to kind of describe, you know, and, and very confusing. And that pasture raised means that that, You know, bird was able to get outside and like eat like the bugs and the worms and the whatever other things they're going to eat, which are very random and kind of type. But those are how they're getting like those omega 3 fatty acids. Those are how they're getting. So we don't actually want vegetarian fed eggs. You know, it's like you you'll see it on labels. I always like laugh that I'm like god, this is so confusing to someone who's like not, you know, educated. There's
0: like 30 different labels here and they make them look very shiny. Oh my gosh, it's so much marketing. It's it's really confusing and and deceiving and you know, some of these terms are not regulated. You know, so people can kind of throw them around or companies can throw them around and it sounds, you know, enticing and we trust that our food companies are giving us good products, but There is a lot of confusion and a lot of deceitful marketing, unfortunately, but I I love that you brought up that point, Abby, in terms of some of the kind of like trigger words that I mentioned with the gold standard of like pasture-raised or grass-fed, grass-finished, organic. You know, these do have certain requirements in terms of, you know, the grazing and, you know, being able to get or engage in the natural foraging practices, not, you know, being in crates or crowded, you know, living spaces. So all of these things are important. We could definitely go down a, a big rabbit hole here in terms of talking about the conventional, you know, farming and that whole industry. But I think just giving you a little bit of information about what to look for, you know, is a good starting point. Uh, so you can tune out some of the noise and deceitful marketing.
1: Yeah. And I think on that point of the ethics of if we choose higher quality, especially in farms like, you know, force of nature and the regenerative farming, like that is really like what our planet is, you know, is what is going to help with the, you know, health of our soils and the health of our planet. This like mono agriculture that we've created is really what is kind of devastating the nutrient levels of our soils and the overuse of pesticides and all of these things. So it's like, ultimately, you know, we get to vote with our dollars and that's, you know, where, you know, I think there's another side to it. And that's like, you know, sustainable dish. Diana, I think is, is her name really does a, a beautiful job in kind of showing this side of it. And we'll probably have a whole episode on this coming up because I could say a lot more, but I'm going yeah, to myself. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> And she has a book and a documentary, Sacred Cow. Great resource if you're interested in in learning a little bit more about this stuff. And also, I just want to point out one mistake I made. I was mentioning Force of Nature, which is an incredible company as well. But I was uh, meant to say Wild Pastures for being a a more nationwide, you know, CSA and the regenerative farming and, and all of that as a correction. Very cool. Hi, Abby here. And I wanted to check in with you all about your gut health. Are you ready to
1: heal your gut, eliminate digestive symptoms, and experience better energy, clear skin, and improve focus? You might be surprised to discover the one thing holding you back is something that affects every system in the body. But if you're like every client I've worked with, you've not heard about it before. And unless you address this one key body process, no diet, supplement, or lifestyle change will have the lasting impact you want. That one system is your drainage system. And I'll teach you exactly what you need to do to get that system functioning again in my free training, So you can finally heal your gut and eliminate those frustrating energy, skin, and brain fog symptoms once and for all. So if you're ready, sign up for the free drainage system training through the link in our show notes or go to abovehealthnutrition.com and it's right at the top of our homepage.
0: Let's talk about protein powders protein powders. Oh my gosh. So we get so many questions about protein powders from clients on social media. And there is a ton of confusion and controversy out there about protein powders. Protein powders are typically used most often by athletes, by health and wellness enthusiasts, and individuals that are maybe looking to up their protein intake in an easy way to support, you know, building lean muscle. So there's a variety of people that might have an interest in in protein powders, and they're definitely, you know, trendy. So the one thing that we need to point out right off the bat when it comes to protein powders is that. Protein powders are not regulated by the FDA. So there are many protein powder products out there that can contain a lot of additives and fillers. So things like gums, thickeners, non-nutritive sweeteners, sugar alcohols, natural flavors, and all sorts of things. And I point this out because I think a lot of us assume or think about protein powder like it's, it's a health food, right? And it's really at the end of the day, it's It's a processed food, which means um, we do want to be mindful of the sourcing, the processing, and the other ingredients that are added to the protein powder. These things matter. And I'll talk in a minute about kind of what to look for there, but I just want to call that out because not, not all protein powders are created equal and we can have some you know, not so great ultra processed, you know, protein powders that have like a laundry list of 30 ingredients in there. So something we just want to be aware of in terms of types of protein powders. We have our animal based protein and we have our plant based protein sources. So for animal-based protein powders, most commonly these are going to come from dairy. So our whey protein or our casein or, or a combination of both. And I would say that whey and casein are probably the most well-researched or well-studied types of protein powder. So we have a lot of data on them. They've been around for a long time. We also have um, egg based protein powders, which have become a little bit more popular um, over the years. And then we also have things like our collagen peptides, which are also very popular right now. For plant based protein powders, the most common or popular choices are typically going to be things like soy, hemp, and pea proteins, because these are complete plant proteins. All other plant based protein powders are usually going to have some combination of protein sources since they are incomplete proteins. So you'll see like the soy protein, hemp protein, pea proteins as standalone proteins in a protein powder that's plant-based. But if you're seeing things like brown rice you know, protein, pumpkin seed, derived protein powder, even like chia seed, you'll see in some. With these incomplete proteins, we need to combine a variety of them in order to provide that complete amino acid profile since they are, you know, lacking some key amino acids there. We know that with whole food protein sources, you know, animal proteins are considered higher quality because of the quantity and the absorbability of the amino acids like we've talked about, but protein powders in in kind of comparing things are a little bit different. So in studies that have compared supplementation with whey protein and uh, pea protein powder, for example, research has found that there are actually no big differences in the type of protein powder used when there's been comparative studies when looking at improvements with things like strength measures, body composition, muscle thickness, various measures of recovery. So there really aren't big differences in in research between these things. And this is because when you are making protein powder from something like peas, you are isolating the protein component and you are removing the starches, carbohydrates, fiber, and you are essentially creating this like ultra concentrated source of protein, which is why studies on animal versus plant protein powders are, are so comparable with the studies that we do have. There are definitely still some differences with the specifics of the amino acid profile with these things if you were to compare like a whey protein isolate and a pea protein isolate. But ultimately, it appears as though, you know, some of these outcomes that have been measured in various studies, things are are pretty comparable. But in terms of the translation to, to real food, like Abby was kind of de- describing, if you were trying to get 30 grams of protein from beef or milk, if we're thinking like the whey and, and uh, casein comparison versus 30 grams of protein from something like peas, I don't even know how, how many cups of peas you'd need to eat to get there, but it would be a lot. So it's really just, it's not the same in terms of you know food-based sources versus you know protein powders and protein isolates. So just to give you the highlights on some of the differences between plant-based and animal-based protein powder specifically. At the end of the day, if I'm recommending a protein powder to clients, I typically will default to them in terms of their preference for animal or plant-based protein powder and ideally, this is something that we're just using to supplement. It is not the predominant main protein source in our diet. It is something that is supplemental. Some individuals do better with animal-based protein powders and others do better with plant-based protein powders. Oftentimes, this does boil down to what's going on in the gut. Surprise, surprise, in terms of you know, what someone tolerates, what someone feels good with you know, reactivity and all of that. When choosing a protein powder product in general, we want to choose protein powders that are made with very, very few ingredients. The less, the better. And ideally, we we want very minimal additives. Again, there are some protein powders out there that you will see have like 30 ingredients. So I'm thinking we're looking for, you know, three, four, five maybe at the most, ingredient wise, but less, less is definitely more when it comes to these protein powders. Ideally, we want a protein powder that was made without chemical solvents. So chemical solvents like hexane are often used as part of the protein extraction process with both animal and uh, plant proteins. So we want to not be kind of messing with our food as as you know much as we are um because you know this can you know lead to other issues and more you know kind of reactivity and things like that so ideally it's going to be made without chemical solvents and lastly we always want to make sure that the protein powder has been independently third party tested so that company is paying an outside company to actually you know review and test the product specifically for things like contaminants heavy metals heavy metals are more so A concern with the plant-based proteins and more so as well with the combination like blends of plant proteins because there's more opportunity for, you know, contaminants and heavy metals to come in. So we really want to make sure that the protein powder we're selecting pays for that independent third-party testing and that they share that information or they share that certificate of analysis. Sometimes you can get it on the website. If you can't, reach out and ask them. If they won't provide it, you know, to you, then we move on. That is a red flag. So ultimately, the goal is to ideally really get most of our protein from whole food sources, both animal and plant, and to focus on diversity with those sources. So we're getting a variety of amino acids from foods. Protein powders can absolutely be a great way to supplement, to fill in the gaps. But at the end of the day, they really should not be, unless there's, you know, a a medical reason that that's happening, they should not be replacing our protein source in more than like one meal you know, or a snack daily, you know, we want to get protein from other sources for the amino acids, but also for all of the other great nutrients that we get with the whole food sources. I couldn't agree more of that kind of like once a day max. And
1: then we, you know, that variety, we want other different sources of, of proteins and different foods to come in. Should we share our current favorite proteins that I guess we're using and maybe recommending?
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. I love that idea. Give give some shout outs to companies that are, yeah. are doing it right. Um, the, I, I would say my go-to kind of recommendations based on quality and also what clients actually like and enjoy from a taste perspective. Um, usually my, my go-to for a plant protein recommendation is going to be something like New Zest, um, and particularly Leather GI line, um, which contains very few ingredients, um, you know, and removes some additional, you know, kind of additives that can be irritating for people with a sensitive gut. But I just kind of like like to keep it clean across the board. Um, for an animal protein, I'm a huge fan of Paleo Valley, um, you know, and all of their protein powder products. Love that New Zest is totally my go-to
1: recommendation for like a plant-based protein. Also, I actually didn't even know they had a GI line. So I'm excited about that little nugget of wisdom. Oh, so good. And then I'm a big fan. I love the paleo Valley too. I'm hooked on right now. Be well by Kelly's collagen protein. I probably use the unflavored, which is like kind of sweet on its own right. But I do have like a love affair with her chocolate and literally just adding hot water to it to making like a hot cocoa. That sounds delicious. It is so good. And it's a collagen based. I don't think I said that. So, you know, I think this kind of takes us to our our next topic of, you know, let's talk about protein and stress. And what might be surprising is that we can actually use protein for energy. Jilly kind of mentioned that at the beginning of the talk on kind of protein metabolism, but it really only becomes available to us as a predominant energy source in the face of chronic or prolonged stress. And knowing what we know about chronic stress, this isn't a process that we want to activate often. So this process of turning protein or more specifically our valuable amino acids into energy or really into blood sugar for energy is called gluconeogenesis, and it's activated in times of high stress or starvation, prolonged fasting, anytime that we're having low energy reserves in the body. So a low caloric state. This is how stress can lead to the breakdown of our protein stores, such as our muscles and our gut lining to highlight two of our very valuable protein areas in the body, protein pools. And this actually can lead to elevated blood sugar. So it can be surprising when we think about elevated blood sugar, but we haven't eaten anything. Where is it coming from? It could be coming from the metabolism of our own protein stores. So just really quick and dirty to do another little deep dive kind of chemistry moment on gluconeogenesis. So in the face of chronic stress or low energy intake or fasting, especially prolonged fasting, the body sounds the alarm that energy availability is too low. And thus we need to address our or adjust our metabolic functions to free up energy or glucose from other sources. So our nervous system and our HPA, so our hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal axis are upregulated when our stress balance or allostatic load, another way to say kind of stress balance in the body become high or too high. So this leads to kind of the upregulation of the nervous system and activates our like that go, go, go that fight or flight nervous system. And our HPA axis triggers the release of cortisol, our glucocorticoid stress hormone and cortisol acts as a catabolic hormone, meaning it breaks down tissues in the body to free up resources for energy. If we were running from a tiger, this would be a very helpful time to get some extra energy to get to a safe place. But if we are sitting, writing an email and stressing out, we probably don't want free energy and elevated blood glucose because we're not going to have anywhere to utilize it. So this is really how when we are experiencing a low energy state of prolonged fasting, too low calorie diets or excessive physical exercise that's over our caloric intake, our body's metabolism will protectively shift with the guide of cortisol to start to break down tissues like muscle and our gut lining and freeing up those amino acids to produce blood sugar. So what might be the most surprising is that this stress shift can actually increase the potential for actually insulin resistance and those elevated blood sugar episodes. So this really speaks to the importance of nourishing our bodies for calories as the foundation, and then focusing on that optimal macronutrient intake as, you know, we don't want to threaten those energy needs of our bodies because we have brilliant mechanism that, you know, our body will find the resources that it needs. It is absolutely a brilliant organism and we are put together in very specific ways, but often kind of at the expense of, you know, some hard earned muscle and gut lining is when we're practicing things like very low protein intake, very low calorie intake, or ultra low carbohydrate intake, these can be some of the things that can trigger those protective metabolic shifts. So this highlights the loss of muscle mass in weight loss. So we can often hear from, you know, prospective clients of, you know, the only way I can lose weight is by restricting calories or macronutrients. I'm using air quotes there. And we hear that often. And, you know, really the question that we start to think of is when we are restricting to that level, are we actually losing more or mostly muscle mass, especially if it's done in this extreme fashion or over a very short period of time when weight loss is really just measured by a scale? It's really just that one-sided number that doesn't tell us what type of tissue mass we're losing. And our body, when again in that threatened state, will typically shift to metabolizing maybe even more muscle mass than adipose. And generally any weight loss, we're going to be losing both adipose tissue and muscle mass. But the more gradual and supportive we aim around the changes in body composition, if we're seeking weight loss, we might see more of a kind of reserve of muscle mass and more utilization of that fat mass. And we really talked about that in our weight loss episode, especially those adaptive protective mechanisms that that make it so that we don't want to go anywhere fast in terms of changing metabolic function in the body. We like the slow and steady tortoise.
0: <laughs> low and slow win, wins the race. And I, I love, you know, kind of how you you break all this down. And I think specifically in talking about Body composition and and weight loss, because like we talked about in the weight loss episode, we we very much acknowledge and respect the desire for people to want to see those shifts. But a lot of what we actually see in practice is individuals working against their bodies. And, you know, maybe it's that like protein intake is is super low and we can't even, you know, kind of build and and, you know, repair and maintain that lean muscle. Or maybe we're just so focused on on protein and we forget about that preferential energy source, glucose, and The body is going to continue to, you know, resist building that lean muscle. So, you know, just by, uh, adjusting, you know, macronutrient intake and kind of working towards meeting your needs optimally, you know, this can really lead to not just benefits with, with, you know, body composition or aesthetic goals, but just like overall health goals. And that's why we really love the balanced plate, the gut and hormone plate so much, because it, it really serves as a starting point for bringing in all of these elements that the body needs to function optimally. And absolutely, you can kind of fine tune and tweak and customize from there. But most individuals are really just just gonna benefit from like consistency with meal composition using that plate as a guide and I
1: mean like we've been doing this for what like 15 you know arguably 20 years since we became obsessed with nutrition like I still think about the balance plate as my tool to put together my meals. It's not like I've graduated to this like secret level, you know, where like, we actually were like, actually, this is what we really do. But like, we're just like giving you guys like the dumbed down version. Like, no, it's like, it really is just this beautiful, simplistic visual tool that has, you know, a wealth of knowledge behind it, which we're sharing with you the why, but you know, that's like so much of the action
0: is, is that. I completely agree and it's like it almost sounds too simple, right? Or like too good to be true. But it's it's so wildly impactful and you know when you're thinking about that visual tool consistently, it starts to become really intuitive. And again, you can fine tune and tweak and and you know, get more micro with meeting your needs, but most people are are not there yet, honestly, in in our experience and I think that fundamental plate is just such a such a great tool. So How much protein do we actually need in terms of getting into, you know, kind of the nitty gritty here? So the RDA guidelines for protein intake for the average adult is 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram body weight. This is the bare minimum recommendation for protein intake for preventing illness. But most of us are not just looking to survive or to prevent disease. We are looking to Thrive. So, this recommendation for protein intake, that RDA recommendation, is actually really, really low based on up to date research. And the average adult actually needs a lot more protein than that to function optimally and to actually thrive. So optimal protein intake is going to and, you know, kind of what your needs are specifically are going to vary greatly depending on things like, you know, are you a male or a female, you know, your age or how old you are, how physically active you are. So there's a lot of factors that come into play when you're actually determining an individual's needs on this more micro level. But in general, as kind of a benchmark, optimal protein intake based on up-to-date research is more like 0.8 to 1 or even 1.2 grams of protein per pound, per pound body weight. If you're an athlete, you're an older adult, protein requirements actually might even be higher than this. But that guideline is a really, really great starting point for getting, you know, just a sense of where you're at, you know, how much you're eating, what you're you're maybe wanting to work towards. And if you're doing that calculation right now and you're like, holy crap, that is a ton of protein. I am nowhere near there. Don't stress. Start from where you are at today and just slowly, incrementally increase your protein intake over time and play around with things a little bit. You know, get a sense of what feels best, what works best for you. As another sort of general guideline or benchmark, I would say most adult women. And again, if, if you're highly active or there's other factors, this could could be much different. But most adult women are going to notice really big improvements if they're getting at least 100 grams of protein a day. Maybe your needs are, you know, 120 or 140, but if you can nail that 100 grams of protein, you know, consistently, you will probably notice massive shifts with how you are feeling, with blood sugar regulation, all the things that, you know, we've we've kind of talked about. And if you're also freaking out, like, how the heck am I going to eat that much protein? Let's kind of talk practical application tips for, you know, how to, how to do this in real life. First and foremost, start from where you're at and maybe just start increasing the actual portion of protein that you are eating at a meal. It could be that simple in terms of maybe you're having like a little itty bitty you know piece of you know chicken or beef or fish at a meal. Maybe you're having two eggs for breakfast every day. Clients are always sh- so shocked when I let them know that two eggs is not nearly enough of protein to meet an adult woman's needs. So, you know, an, an egg, depending on the size, is going to have like six or seven grams of protein. So if we're having two eggs, you know, we're not getting a ton of protein, anywhere from, you know, 12 to maybe 15 grams. So throw another egg in there. Maybe get crazy and throw two eggs in there. Or if that feels like, you know, too much, maybe you do a couple eggs and you add some smoked salmon on the side or, you know, some chicken sausage or ground beef or turkey as a way to kind of amp up the protein intake a little bit at, you know, breakfast. You can also kind of get a little bit like sneaky or, you know, bring in some of our our, you know, go-to tips for getting in protein a little bit more easily in in a way that doesn't feel like you're just increasing the straight portion of protein. So a couple examples here would be like cooking your grains in bone broth or adding bone broth to things like soups and stews, which is actually a pretty rich source of protein and great key amino acids. If you are someone that eats like oatmeal for breakfast, as an example, maybe this is where you add your quality protein powder in, or you could just whisk some eggs directly into your oats after cooking, which if you haven't tried that before, it sounds a little bit weird and creepy, but you don't taste it and it makes your oats like super fluffy. Have you tried that before? It's like so
1: good. And then, or even like cook your oats in bone broth and go like the savory breakfast way. And then add like, you know, you could add whole eggs into that. So it's like, you're kind of taking like a
0: whole new approach on oatmeal that became like savory. I love that. Savory oatmeal. I'm a, I'm a savory breakfast gal through and through. That sounds lovely. And some other, you know, kind of tips would be maybe choosing protein-rich uh, starches to use as your your carbohydrate. So that could be things like peas or quinoa, legumes, or maybe using legume-based pastas, which we mentioned in the last episode, um, like your lentil pasta or chickpea-based pasta, which can really amp up the protein intake in a way that feels a little bit more subtle. Also adding things like pumpkin seeds, hemp seeds to snacks, to salads as like a crunchy munchy topping can be an easy way to to kind of amp things up. A fourth a cup of pumpkin seeds has what, like seven or eight grams yeah, of it's pretty good protein, which is pretty good. Yeah, just a few ideas there. Do you have any other tips and tricks? Oh, yeah. This is where it's like speaking to
1: like some of our plant-based proteins and like welcoming them in to meals that involve animal proteins. Like just like that example of like a lentil pasta with a, like bolognese sauce. You're like, whoa, we just massively increase the protein of that meal. So it's not like, you know, they play well together. Even like in our, you know, oatmeal example, it's like adding in like hemp hearts are a uh, favorite protein and healthy fat and like mineral rich source of, you know, lots of different nutrients and things. But it's like three tablespoons, which is kind of a lot of hemp parts, but three tablespoons is like 10 grams of protein. Realistically, probably it's like two tablespoons what most people eat, but similar to like the pumpkin seeds, like kind of sprinkling them in. They don't change the consistency or the flavor terrifically, but they add like a little bit of texture. Crunchy bunchy is now what I'm going to say forever.
0: Crunchy munchy. Crunchy munchy. Another great crunchy munchy, which I think you love too, Abby, is roasting chickpeas, you know, seasoning them so they're crunchy and kind of almost crouton like, and throw them on a salad. And you can also have, you know, some, you know, fish on there, maybe some. You know, pouched or canned salmon, or you know, whatever proteins left over from dinner, and you throw in some crunchy, crunchy, munchy roasted chickpeas, and you're really kind of amping up the protein and the fiber there. Yeah,
1: I like love. I mean, those are so good, and you could, I mean, they they sell them in like pretty pouches now too. If you sometimes they're like so crunchy, and you're like, did I lose a tooth? <laughs> You can find goods like (laughs) Vienna or something like that. But even thinking of like, can I, you know, if I'm in a, a, like a pinch, it's like, can I take like a canned, like one of like the Amy's like butternut squash soups or something. And then maybe I have some like leftover like grilled chicken and I'll dice that up. And then let me add some of those chickpeas on top of the soup. And I've like doctored up. I like refer to this with clients of like, let's doctor it up. It's like you took something store-bought or I was actually did something on Instagram the other day where, did you ever watch that show? Like semi-homemade with like Sandra Lee or something. No, but
0: I saw you post about that. And I'm like sad that I never saw that. It's. sounds- I mean, she was actually, like, if anyone awesome. watched it, she was a
1: character. She like always had like a signature cocktail, but it felt like she had like two or three before the actual show was aired. And I was like, this is my kind of lady. <laughs> but it's always like kind of that like semi homemade. It's like, all right, I've got like this like can of soup but like, how do I bump up the protein and like the nutrient density? And it's like thinking of like, are there leftovers that I can put in there? Are there like some other additions that I can like kind of bring things together? I mean, these are, we've talked about this, like some of our most favorite meals come from like, what do I have left in the kitchen? That's like random. You're like, you know, scraping the pantries and like back of the fridge type of things. Sometimes they're weird and I won't ever speak about the combinations of
0: food I eat. And other times I'm like, I'm a genius. (gasps) <gasps> this yeah. is the best combination yeah. ever. You I, I will actually say Abby is a genius at like the I have nothing in my house and I'm gonna whip up something that tastes absolutely delicious. I just take that compliment to heart. And it usually involves a lentil <laughs> pasta, which I will never it turn always down. It involves a <laughs> lentil pasta. Uh, and like a tinned uh, fish. <laughs> so so convenient, right? And in terms of like accessibility and pantry mm-hmm. staples, so <gasps> Hopefully this is helpful for highlighting the fact that it doesn't have to be like crazy hard and it doesn't, you know, necessarily have to mean like just eating a large piece of animal protein. You know, we, we've talked about the benefits of animal protein, but you can really meet your protein needs optimally and all of your, you know, kind of micronutrient needs if you're kind of bringing in all these different sources and have a little fun with it. Fun is the name of the game. And
1: starting now with really focusing on like protein, we say now, like, you know, we were actually looking at like, what is our like average audience age and things. And like, most of us are, it's like spans from like 20 to like mid forties, I'd say if we're being, you know, kind of the tail ends and welcome. If you're younger or older, we like what we want everyone. But that idea of like, we like where we are, you know, now is where we're starting from. So, you know, if you are, you know, on the kind of earlier side of like aging, it's like, we want to think about like, how do we support kind of like aging more gracefully in our bodies? And that has nothing to do with like aesthetics. I mean, if that's a goal, this we're all going the same place with what we're talking about, but really about like our, you know, ability to participate in our lives through all the, the decades of our lives is really the ultimate goal and to to be, you know, present and fully involved in it. And that's really where like protein intake is no exception as protein intake is directly correlated with the maintenance of muscle mass as we age. So sarcopenia is a term that refers to the age-related involuntary loss of skeletal muscle mass that puts older individuals at risk of falls, fractures, and, and overall increased risk of death. So that process actually starts as, as young as the 40s. And aging doesn't have to mean frailty. Aging doesn't have to mean like loss of muscle mass, you know, it's, it's a gradual process that, you know, we do see happen, but we have, you know, control over many of the measurable pieces of it. So there's definitely certain risk factors such as like smoking and diabetes and certain medications and elevated body weight for starters. But even more notably is suboptimal protein intake and low nutrient density in the diet. Those show significant impact on the overall rate and amount of muscle loss. And we know that improving nutrition and lifestyle at really any age is effective for both the prevention and the treatment of sarcopenia. And protein is the major macronutrient that we know from research that reduces and even pulls us back from muscle loss even after it started to happen. So, you know, in general, protein needs actually increase as we age. And I think that this is not talked about enough. And I think it would be even surprising maybe for certainly like I don't, you know, when I think of like my mom or something, like, I'm not sure if she like overtly knows that as much as I've told her that. I'm not sure if she's hearing me. I'm like, mom, (laughs) but often in our older clients or our parents, we might see like an overall less intake of food period, and especially a less protein intake. And- you know, we know that that protein intake is associated with that increased muscle mass and even greater benefits to strength when, you know, done alone or in combination with exercise and strength training. So, you know, our goal is really to create these habits of consistency that include incorporating protein at, all meals and snacks, so that as we age, there's less likelihood of that significant muscle wasting because we're already tending to our body's protein needs. We're already building on that knowledge, those habits, those consistencies, and we're aware of the increases that happen because we also have, you know, just natural shifts of aging that are happening that involve, you know, hormonal shifts with estrogen during perimenopause and postmenopause that lead to the body's kind of holding on to more adipose tissue and kind of resistance in building of muscle mass. And so really helping to, you know, from the nutrition side, eat in alignment with helping to balance our blood sugar. That's going to help to balance more protein or hormonal shifts and really help to optimize the body's utilization of muscles for strength building. And we also have a natural shift in reduction of stomach acid. And as Jilly talked about at the beginning of the episode, stomach acid is incredibly important for the digestion and kind of absorption of those proteins and amino acids. So, you know, by the age of of 65, there's an approximate like 30% reduction in stomach acid. So, you know, we do have things that are naturally happening in the aging process that, you know, pose some opportunities, but now that we know about them and we know that protein is a, is a big, you know, area where we can overcome some of
0: those opportunities, like that's where
1: we can additionally focus on.
0: A hundred percent. And I think that it's, it is that kind of double whammy situation with aging where protein needs increase. And with that, you know, 30% decline in stomach acid after age 65, it's harder to digest. And oftentimes, like we talked about in our balance plate episode, when stomach acid production is low, oftentimes we will feel averse to protein foods. And when we eat protein foods, even if it's an optimal amount or a suboptimal amount, if stomach acid is low, it can kind of feel like it's sitting like a rock in our stomach and we're actually physically feeling the effects of not being able to break that down well. So a tip that Abby had shared on the the last episode, if this is relevant for you, is, you know, maybe playing with or tinkering around with a little bit of support for encouraging digestive secretions and specifically stomach acid. So like playing around with utilizing a little bit of apple cider vinegar or lemon before meals or maybe some actual digestive bitters, you know, about 15 minutes before eating, maybe some ginger to really get that digestive fire going and to increase the production of stomach acid. And that alone can often make a massive difference with an individual's ability to consume appropriate amounts of protein and to break it down and, you know, utilize those those amino acids. So just a lot of opportunity with aging to, you know, Really thrive, you know, throughout that that process. And it's funny you you mention your mom and the protein. Every time I talk to my mom about something related to nutrition or diet or breakfast, I'm like, "How many eggs did you eat? More than two, right?" Or, you know, did you have a full cup of cottage cheese? I'm like on her butt all the time. If you're listening to this, mom, I'm sorry, but it's because I love you, and you know, we want we want to uh, support that lean muscle for the the healthy aging process. And like, when did it
1: become like set in like a law that like we can only eat two eggs? like I feel like it's like any time like sometimes clients are like, "But I can't eat more than two eggs." I'm like, "Says who?" Like, who made that rule? Yeah. Like,
0: what? <laughs> yeah, Bring in two me. more. Yeah, two more. We're right <laughs> <in> four. <laughs> We're breaking all the rules. No rules. <laughs> so, one of the last things I want to touch on about actual like protein intake and kind of meeting your needs is protein timing. So, just briefly, protein timing does matter. If you are you know, not eating much protein at breakfast or there's, you know, some meals throughout the day that are skimpy, you know, in protein, this can actually have a significant impact on things and specifically, you know, the supporting of lean muscle like Abby is just talking about. You know, we don't want to eat a bunch of low protein meals and then like eat all of all of our protein at one time. It's not going to produce the benefit that we are looking for, even if you're getting like the overall quantity that you're looking for. If it's, just at one time of day. So, you know, research has really found in general that spreading protein intake out evenly throughout the day and kind of giving your body that continual supply of those amino acids to utilize for all these different things in the body is where we are going to find the most benefit. I do think in particular, I you know, we both find that people really struggle with protein at breakfast. And that time in particular, we do have some good data on, you know, the importance of really nailing that protein intake first thing in the morning. When we can meet our protein needs first thing in the morning at that breakfast that we have you know, one to two hours after waking, we are supporting blood sugar stability for the rest of the day. We are really significantly supporting the metabolism and metabolic function. So we're setting ourselves up for success in a variety of ways, and the body is super primed and prepped for food, carbs, protein, fat, all the things in the morning in particular. So if you are kind of wondering, all right, where where do I start with all of this? Check out what's happening with breakfast. There likely might be an opportunity to really amp up that Protein at breakfast, which can have a really positive ripple effect on things. But in general, let's spread our protein intake out evenly. So adequate protein at every meal, and ideally bringing in some protein at snacks as well. Protein at breakfast is like the longest conversation that I have with clients. And usually,
1: I'm like your lunch looks Always. great and your dinner looks great because those are like traditional protein. It's like let's go non-traditional mm-hmm. if it's like you know because a lot of our traditional like our cereal and our pancakes or you know whatever those types of things like or even just the one to two eggs like very low. So I think the most opportunity I always see is really distribution throughout the
0: day. 100% agree.
1: And then in closing, you know, what are some signs that you might experience in your own body um that might be telling you you're not getting enough protein or maybe you're not absorbing enough protein. So highlight a couple digestion symptoms. We can think of feeling early satiety so you eat maybe a small bit of food and you're like really full well before anyone else around you eating that same volume of food or a much larger volume of food is comfortably full food sitting like a rock in your stomach feeling like it's like just not moving or you're full like prolonged fullness you're full very far after a three to four hour window that's kind of you know the ideal of like starting to get hungry again for like lunch it's like you go well past lunch and you're not even hungry you know for dinner burping burping heartburn, pressure in the upper GI or even throats and like non-traditional kind of heartburn-like symptoms can can come up. Difficulty feeling full. You just feel like you could just kind of endlessly eat or you don't really have like connection to kind of more satiety-like feelings can be an opportunity for more protein. Overall, maybe just difficulty building lean muscle mass, opportunity for for more protein and distribution of protein too. Blood sugar swings or imbalances in blood sugar, and we could experience those as as kind of energy crashes or feeling kind of like even like lightheaded or feeling unfocused or feeling really lethargic and kind of just almost like highs and lows throughout the day. Hair loss or hair thinning. We're getting sick often. That importance of kind of protein for immune function and just overall like poor metabolic health. So we're kind of talking about our blood sugar. We're talking about cholesterol. We're talking about the whole gamut of things that are doing to do even with body composition too. So
0: those are just some kind of quick and dirty signs. Anything that you would add to that list? You covered it really well. The one other thing that came to mind was anxiety and other, other mood disorders in terms of maybe it's the blood sugar instability with not eating enough protein, or maybe it is the actual, you know, lack of important amino acids that are needed or maybe the micronutrients in, you know, certain protein foods, anxiety and, you know, depression and other mood disorders, kind of making sure we're meeting our protein needs and not overlooking something that could potentially make a difference in how we're feeling.
1: Well, that is a wrap on our protein episode. For what we have for you now, we did hold ourselves back from going on and on and on and on, but, you know, let us know like questions, areas you want us to dig into more, things that you you know, still want to learn more about this is what, you know, lights us up and give us feedback. You can catch us on Instagram at your body has your back. We take, you know, any type of kind of insight of things that you want to learn there. And we can't wait to hear from you all about, you know, how this episode's helping you. Maybe even pictures of your meals. Tag us for ways that you're increasing your protein at breakfast if you're eating three to four eggs. Like, holy moly.
0: <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. I can't, can't wait. And we will see you in our next episode where we will be doing a deep dive on all things carbohydrates. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Your Body Has Your Back
1: podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast episode, please take a minute to leave us a five-star review.
0: And make sure to share the podcast with a friend or family member that you think might benefit from listening. Make sure to follow the Your Body Has Your Back Instagram and to share your favorite episodes. And definitely tag us as you start to live out the Your Body Has Your Back lifestyle. We can't wait to see it. If you're looking for more support on your gut and hormone healing journey, connect with Abby and I over on Instagram. You can follow Abby at Above Health, and you can follow me, Jillian, at Jillian Greaves RD. Thank you and see you in the next episode.